Welcome to the Safe Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maria Lee, General Practitioner and Medical Advisor in the health regulation sector. I analyze medical errors and clinical incidents for a living. And along the way, I've learned a lot about the principles and the mechanics of safe practice, which I'm hoping to share with you in this podcast. I hope you stay tuned. And if you learn something, please pay it forward and share your knowledge with other clinicians. That way, pod by pod, we can build a safer healthcare system together. Of course, the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are entirely my own and are not the views of any of the organisations or bodies with which I am affiliated. So, without further ado, let's get stuck into some safe practice. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. Today, we're going to start with a clinical scenario. A woman in her mid-30s needs elective surgery under a general anaesthetic. She tells her surgeon that she's breastfeeding and asks him, is there anything I need to know about breastfeeding after my anaesthetic? Her surgeon considers this question for a moment and then says, look, pump and dump for 48 hours post-op just to be safe. For those who are not aware, pump and dump refers to the practice of expressing breast milk and discarding it afterwards. And it's usually done because of concerns that the breast milk is contaminated with a substance or a medication that is harmful to the baby. Now, was this the right advice for that surgeon to give? No, it wasn't. This woman, this patient, was me. And this interaction is the reason I'm recording this episode of the podcast on the topic of breastfeeding and pumping and dumping after surgery. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Jackie McPhee, who is an anaesthetist. Hi, Jackie. Hello. How are you going, Maria? I'm great, Jackie. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in this topic? I'm an Australian trained anaesthetist and I have a special interest in anaesthetics for women. I do a lot of anaesthetics for obstetrics and for breast surgery. And I have also breastfed my own two children and that was basically when I got particularly interested in the subject of breastfeeding in the perioperative period. So we know this wasn't the correct advice. So I guess the next question is, do breastfeeding mums need to pump and dump after a general anaesthetic? By the time uh, a mum is in recovery and awake enough to find a baby and hold a baby, 98 or more percent of the anaesthetic agent has already been processed and is pretty much gone from her bloodstream. So if she can find the baby and hold the baby, she can feed the baby. The anaesthetic agents are not going to affect the baby. If I have a breastfeeding mum, say, come for like a gastroscopy or a, a day surgery procedure, I often advise them to bring the baby and feed in recovery if it's going to be a long day. Some women do need a, a caesarean under a general, right? And obviously we don't advise those women to not breastfeed their baby for the first 24 Absolutely hours. Absolutely not. We do the opposite. We try to get them skin to skin as soon as possible and get them um, breastfeeding as soon as possible. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Anesthetic agents, not a concern. If you're awake enough to feed the baby, you can feed the baby. Yes. Now, what about those medications that we're likely to give patients after their surgery? So I'm talking about antibiotics, painkillers, aperients, antiemetics, and DVT prophylaxis. If a patient is administered these classes of medications, can they still breastfeed their baby? Um, All of those classes of drugs are perfectly safe and are used very routinely. The one one that 
can sometimes give you pause is opiates and that's the one that we try to minimize but we still use very routinely very commonly in say after cesarean sections um, every patient that I've ever treated in Australia goes on to opiates after their cesarean section and breastfeeds the baby with no no issues. There are certain classes that have had case reports of issues. The main one that springs to mind is codeine. Um, codeine is generally in all the um, guidelines. It, it is not recommended. Why is that? There were some case studies that showed um, reduced conscious level in babies um, if the mother was an ultra-rapid metabolizer. And if you think about it, somewhere between 4 and 10% of people in Australia will be ultra-rapid metabolizers. So oh, that can wow. be a significant proportion. Um, and if the baby is also an ultra-rapid metabolizer, then there can be issues. The, the codeine is generally not advised at all. Morphine is completely, f is completely fine and it's one of the safer ones to use. Oxycodone, most of the guidelines say, can be used with caution. Most of them recommend capping a maximum daily dose of 30 milligrams, although uh, that is probably very conservative um, and it's probably one of the most commonly used ones I've seen, certainly in New South Wales, used. Um, most patients go on to uh, oxycodone endone post-operatively uh, post and use it fine with breastfeeding with no consequences. Mm -hmm. There is a small caveat for a, a very unlucky group of people where they have a preterm baby or a baby that has a history of apneas, for them, a little bit of more caution might be advisable. But for the vast majority of people who have healthy term babies um, after they're born, you do not need to pump and dump. And all of the professional guidelines, that especially, especially the ones that have been published in the last five years, advise against telling patients to do that. Yep. And just reflecting on my own experience, um, I was given oxycodone and tramadol after my two cesareans. And I continued that for about a week in each case and breastfed all the way through. Uh, so it speaks to your um, point that it's very much the done thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I have personally been involved with real life examples of oxycodone used in nursing mothers for more than 10 years and have and do not know of any issues. And if there was an issue in New South Wales, we would all be discussing it. I, I wanted to add my own personal experience just because it's safe for baby to have um, all of these drug classes. There are sometimes consequences like so personally, I had to go. I had a dental thing whilst I was breastfeeding and I had to go on antibiotics and I had to go on an antibiotic that makes your breast milk taste really bad. And um, I was on that for two weeks and that was the end of my breastfeeding journey with my second child. Um, she took an aversion to the taste, naturally so, and um, that's what stopped us breastfeeding. So there are consequences, um, but not necessarily direct uh, harm as we think of it. Um, and by that stage, we were long past the, the time where she was exclusively breastfed. And so she was, you know, established on an oral diet. So it wasn't wasn't as much of an issue. But in the early days, if that were an exclusively breastfed baby, that could be a massive issue. That's a good point. Hey, can you share the name of that antibiotic? Oh, yeah, it's metronidazole. Really common. Ah, okay. Mm. Not so much a safety issue, as in that that breast milk is not unsafe to consume, but it's clearly it changes the taste. And if your baby has a preference, um, they may refuse to drink. If you go into that, if someone prescribes it and they didn't know that, it could be very upsetting. 
Well, I think that's probably a good learning point uh, is that if there is a valid alternative to metronidazole in a breastfeeding patient, then perhaps to use that valid alternative uh, because anyone who hasn't breastfed may not understand this, but having a breastfeeding journey come to an end abruptly um, in an unplanned way regardless of whether that baby needs that breast milk uh, for nourishment or whether it's for comfort, um, the end of that is like at the end of a relationship. Uh, and it, it can be quite distressing and traumatic uh, for the mum. So if there's an alternative to metronidazole in a breastfeeding patient, use that alternative. In my case, I, I, there wasn't an alternative because I did look. Okay. If, if it's necessary, it's necessary. But it's, good, it's still good to know, to be warned in advance. There's necessary and tell the patient that this could be the consequence and then there's not telling the patient and it end up being a shock. Absolutely. That's not ideal, is it? Okay, so just to summarise, common classes of medications that we're likely to give after surgery, antibiotics, aperients, antiemetics, DBT prophylaxis, all are considered safe for the baby uh, uh, and painkillers, most of them are safe. The only one that you really would think is contraindicated is codeine, and that's based on case reports of respiratory depression in babies. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Okay, so let's say you're going to anaesthetise someone um, who is breastfeeding. What can medical practitioners do to prepare that patient uh, to minimise the disruption to their breastfeeding as a result of that surgery? The overriding thing to know about breastfeeding uh, patients is that you want to minimize disruption to their usual routine. So there are many ways that you can do that. You can make sure that they're early on your list if you have control over that. They don't have to be first on the list, but the, the less they're fasting, the better, because they need more calories and they need more fluid than the average patient. You would hopefully give them fluids until sending if your hospital lets you do that. A lot of places do sip till send. But if your hospital policy doesn't allow you to do that, certainly encourage them to stay hydrated until whatever cutoff your hospital allows. Most places have a two-hour cutoff. What's sip till send? Sip till send. Uh, basically, you're allowed to sip 200 mils of clear fluids per hour until the moment the porter comes to take you to the operating theatre. It's becoming more and more common and there's evidence that it, it kind of improves gastric emptying, actually reduces the amount of acid in your tummy and therefore reduces the risk of aspiration once you're, you go under for an anaesthetic rather than the other way around. So we thought filling the tummy in the past would make it worse but now we know that putting stuff into it encourages it to empty um, and so it's actually the advice that is changing for clear fluids that is obviously not solids. So if you have if you have any power over that, sip till send is ideal um, to keep the patient hydrated. If they're getting delayed, if there's any reason or if there's going to be a major fluid shift or it's major surgery, start IV fluids early. Um, you know, most women who are breastfeeding are need somewhere in, in between a litre to a litre and a half of extra fluid compared to the average pace, patient per day. Uh, and so we do not want them to get dehydrated. Uh, the other thing that I advise the patients is to breastfeed or pump as close to the time of the start of surgery as possible. So if they have a breast pump, I advise them to bring it with them because you never know who's going to be delayed for whatever reason. If that's not a possibility, you can usually, if you have an obstetric unit or a paediatric unit, you can usually pinch a breast pump from the obstetric ward or the postnatal ward. Um, and then to 
pump or feed as soon as possible after the operation. So like, like I said, minimizing disruption to the usual pattern is really key um, to stop people getting engorged and having all sorts of other issues. That makes sense. If it's going to be uh, a surgery that requires you to be in hospital for several days, it might be a good idea to recommend the patient to express and have a little stockpile before their surgery, or if it's like a really long surgery. That can also be a useful tip for babies that are have a history of apnea. So um, a stockpile of pre-expressed breast milk can be useful for them as well. Okay, and what about in the recovery period? Ideally, these patients go home on the same day if possible. If that's not an option, it's really helpful if you can get the baby uh, in, the, in their hospital room postoperatively so that they can nurse in the postoperative period. Um, some postnatal wards will allow uh, postoperative post patients from other specialities to go in there, and that's usually the, the first port of call if you want to try and organize that. Um, it's really important if the patient is taking opiates after their surgery to make sure that there's a responsible adult able to help them for at least 24 hours. Someone to be supervising uh, when you are feeding because you're more likely to snooze whilst you're feeding and then there's there comes the risk of um, smothering baby and things like that than the normal ones and some guidelines also say it's possibly a good idea to avoid co-sleeping in that first 24 hours as well for the same reason. Yep that makes sense. If um, if you are the anaesthetist or one of the doctors looking after the patient documenting a post-op breastfeeding plan for the staff in recovery and the wards having it down in writing that you've said to bring the baby to recovery to nurse can sometimes be very helpful. Ah. You feel filled off the question. So, um, and warning the recovery staff that this is your advice. And, you know, collaborating with your recovery staff to make sure that they're okay with that is really important to be collaborative with your nursing staff on these things. Okay, that's very interesting. What about local anaesthetics in breastfeeding? Okay, so local anaesthetic is completely safe. We use it very commonly in pregnant women and it's one of the opioid sparing techniques that is recommended when we're trying to reduce the amount of opiates uh, a pregnant or lactating uh, patient gets so in order to minimize the baby's exposure to opiates so we do cesareans with local anesthetic um, we do lots of day cases with local anesthetic it is ideal actually to have local anesthetic um, and should have absolutely no effect on breastfeeding whatsoever oh wonderful that's good. And isn't local anaesthetic what's given in an epidural? Yeah, epidural and spinal. Excellent. Okay, local anaesthetics, perfectly safe, even in pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if our colleagues who are listening to this episode are not sure whether their patient who is breastfeeding needs to pump and dump after taking a certain medication, what steps can they take to find out? There are some nice guidelines from ANSCA or the Association of Anaesthetists that go through each individual medication that is typically used. Mm -hmm. And we'll link those in the show notes. For um, all other medications, there are some online resources where you can look up specific drugs, things like um, Infant Risk app or Lactmed, or there's a really nice Spanish one called eLactancia. Um, they're all searchable and they give you like color-coded 
information, color-coded uh, risk warnings about whether or not something it has evidence behind it. And they, they usually give you a summary of the evidence behind whether or not something can be used for a breastfeeding or pregnant pregnant person. And I've come across this uh, website called breastfeeding-anesthesia.info slash for clinicians, which um, I'll link in the show notes. I believe that was actually uh, made by an anaesthetist um, who's very passionate about this topic. Yes, uh, Dr. Carolyn Arians. She made a beautiful uh, one-page fact sheet for clinicians, especially anaesthetists and surgeons, to give them the lowdown on what, what to do and what not to do. Um, from Just speaking from a GP point of view, mother safe is always my get-out-of-jail-free card. If I genuinely don't know where to look, looked it up and couldn't find it, I'll call MotherSafe and ask them. Now, you don't always get straight through because obviously I think the demand for their service uh, exceeds the supply of people answering the phone. But generally speaking, if you're happy to wait a little while, and by a little while, I, I don't mean four hours, I mean like, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you generally get through to someone and they'll be very, very helpful. Okay, so at this point, our listeners may ask a very valid question, or they may have been asking it this whole time, which is, hey, look, this is a podcast about safe practice. So why are we talking about pumping and dumping on a podcast about safe practice? What is the harm in pumping and dumping? Even if it's not necessary, what is the harm? If you suddenly stop breastfeeding, um, there can be actually quite negative consequences uh, physically and psychologically. But um, the physical ones include things like uh, disruption to supply, where their supply drops off and they really struggle to re-establish supply. Um, if you suddenly stop breastfeeding and pump, and pumping is never as efficient as actually a baby directly feeding, mm. then you risk things like blocked ducts, mastitis. I myself had multiple episodes of mastitis, or at least one of which landed me in hospital for a week. So <laughs> if you, if you <gasps> can week. avoid that, you definitely should, yes, on IV antibiotics. If you can avoid that, it is ideal. And some babies do not take a bottle. Um, anyone who's had returned to work and tried to coax the baby back onto a bottle <laughs> um, may know this. Some of them just refuse and then will go without for a considerable period of time. So if you can minimize the risk of that happening, then it would be ideal to do that. Um, and the other, the, the opposite of that or the corollary of that is um, babies can develop nipple aversion. If they're too, if they're given a bottle with a teat in it, they can suddenly prefer that because it takes a good 30 seconds to two minutes of, of sucking for letdown to occur uh, in the breast. And if you give, obviously that's not the case with a normal teat, it just immediately starts pouring. And so some babies decide that they're not interested in, in normal breastfeeding anymore and develop a bottle preference. So we want to avoid that too. Basically, breastfeeding is really hard work. It takes time and effort to establish it. And anything that risks that feeding relationship really should be avoided. It, um, I was personally really sad when my own daughter stopped breastfeeding because of my oral medication. And it could have been quite harmful if, we were much, or if she were much younger than she was. These are things that people may not have necessarily thought about if they've not ever breastfed for themselves. And I don't, I think I was aware of them, but I don't think I appreciated it in quite the way that I do now, having lived through it. As usual, um, if you experience it yourself, you're 
eminently more qualified to deal with it in others. And that's certainly something that I have learned from breastfeeding myself. I'm a much better doctor for it. And this is one of the things I learned about was preserving this relationship is actually really, really important. And we should be striving to do that. Absolutely. Okay, so in summary, if we're going to wrap it all up in a nutshell, there is no need to pump and dump after a general anaesthetic. The vast majority of post-operative medications are not contraindicated for breastfeeding and you do not need to pump and dump while taking them. This includes most post-operative painkillers with the exception of codeine. And the final point is asking women to pump and dump without a valid medical reason can disrupt their milk supply increase the risk of mastitis and breast abscess, potentially put the baby at risk of dehydration if they won't take a bottle, and potentially put the breastfeeding journey at risk if the baby develops a teat preference or the milk supply is disrupted and there's difficulty re-establishing it. So for all of those reasons, that's why we're talking about it today. That's why it's important not to tell patients to pump and dump willy-nilly after surgery. Yeah, it's often a kind of an offhand comment and an offhand, it, you know, it's often done just as a, oh, it's probably just to be safe and people don't understand the consequences of what they've asked the patient to do with very little, with basically no evidence to back them. Absolutely. I don't think it's malicious. I think people are genuinely trying to be helpful. Um, Absolutely. I don't begrudge my surgeon for being malicious, for maliciously trying to interrupt my breastfeeding journey. I just think he didn't know what he didn't know. Yeah, and that's why we have things like this podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Jackie, thank you so much for giving me your time and your expertise today. I learned a lot from you and I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot too. I can't overstate how important this topic is given how many of our patients are actually breastfeeding at any given time and therefore the chance of them needing surgery during that time is not remote and I think this information will stand us in very good stead going forward and I hope that this episode is shared widely so that we can all benefit from your expertise. Uh, Thank you very much for having me Maria. Well, that's it for this episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. Now, this is the bit where I ask you guys for a favor. If you found this information helpful, please feel free to share it widely with your colleagues because the more clinicians that know about these tips and tricks of safe clinical practice, the better it stands for all of us, both as practitioners in the healthcare system and as consumers of the healthcare system. And that's it from me today. I'm Dr. Maria Lee and this is Dr. Jackie McPhee. And until next time... Stay safe.